0: Hello, and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name's Neil Selwyn, and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Dr Jesper Orgel. Jesper works in Aarhus University in Denmark and has been researching the impact of digital devices in school classrooms for the past five years or so. In particular, he's focused on the issue of digital distraction, and he's also well known for pushing a post-phenomenological approach to understanding how people experience digital device use. So all in all, Jesper's work offers a fascinating take on education and technology. So we started by asking Jesper to describe what a typical digital classroom might look like in a Danish school.
1: in a sense they are very similar to classic classrooms it's not so much a digital revolution as it's just a digitization of the classic classroom mm. so the blackboard is now a smartboard and what you used to write notes on like paper is now just a laptop but apart from that the regular danish classroom isn't that digital
0: but it's full of devices or
1: it's full of you know students own laptops bring your own device personally owned laptops but it's not full of other devices mm. it's just like a regular classroom. Rows of tables and one teacher standing at a smart
0: board. So the cliche always used to be that if someone came from Victorian times, the classroom of 1900 would look very similar to the classroom of no, 2019. I guess that's not quite the case. So There's other stuff going on in the background.
1: There's a lot of other stuff going on, yeah, but I think they would be able to recognize like the general structure of the classroom. Mm. It's still what you would call sage on the stage, teacher kind of directing the whole thing and... They have group work and you know stuff like that, but it's still mostly just the teacher at the smart board you know, doing their stuff.
0: So what about content? What about curriculum? How is the curriculum being digitized?
1: In some ways, in a very kind of cheap way. So instead of textbooks, you now have, uh, I think they're not even called eBooks, they're called iBooks. And that means they're interactive, hmm. which basically just means they're on the computer and they have embedded YouTube videos. So in many ways, it's not that different from like a regular textbook, but it's just been hyped up to be something entirely new.
0: So as an education researcher then, you can go in and do education research as you always have done for the past 50 years. On the face of it, it doesn't seem to be that different, but your research really tries to dig underneath and look at what's digital in Danish classrooms. I mean, what are you finding?
1: Well, my um, research specifically looks on what I call digital distraction because I thought that was kind of an underplayed aspect of the new digitized classroom. So in Denmark, at least, and I know this is this is a global thing, but there was a lot of hype around digital technologies in the classroom. Around 2013, we, the Danish government, invested hundreds of millions of dollars in just more ICT, not better use or more qualified use, but
0: just quantitatively more devices. And why were they doing that? What was the hype? Well, they had this
1: um, idea, and no one really knows where it comes from, <laughs> but they had this idea they actually had a news story that said, uh, I'll quote here, ICT will strengthen the learning of all children. No ifs and buts, but that was kind of the general idea that mm. if you just invested money in ICT, then the future would be saved, basically. So they invested these huge amounts of money and just more infrastructure, you know, Wi-Fi, uh, learning management systems, stuff like that. And then they had students bring in their laptops and then kind of, you know, reality came crashing in.
0: So you say no one knows where this idea comes from, but. This is the kind of discourse you hear around the world. So is this just a simple case of policy borrowing? where they looking to the states and the UK and thinking, oh, yes, this is definitely worth it? I mean, or were the ideas also localized?
1: I think this is kind of the idea that you could find everywhere. Mm. And a lot of it builds on, you know, ideas of digital natives. A lot of it builds on just, you know, regular old um, technology optimism, which is something you see in every aspect of our society. That's true. Yeah. yeah and and then perhaps there were some you know local aspects of it but but most of it would be recognizable if you went to England or the US or Germany or something like that i think it it's it's kind of the same idea and it's building on this globalized notion of learning as, as something that could be revolutionized and become more constructivist and active and you know more mm. Uh, student-focused, yeah.
0: Absolutely. So you said that's the hype and then you said the reality came crashing down. I saying, what are, what are the realities? What are you finding when you actually go into a classroom as a researcher?
1: Well, one of the things I noticed, both as a student at the time and as a, a student instructor, was that there's a lot of distraction in the classroom, mm. and no one really seemed to talk much about distraction at that time. So I wanted to kind of investigate that because it was something that you didn't have to talk a lot to a teacher before they brought it up. but It wasn't in the policy documents, it wasn't really in the research, it wasn't really anywhere. Um, So I wanted to investigate what all that distraction kind of meant, how you could interpret it, how you could understand it from a psychological perspective.
0: Yeah, so I mean you hear a lot now about people talking about distraction and screens being, but as you say, five, six, seven, eight years ago people weren't talking about that. So I mean, it's an easy word to throw about. What do we actually mean by distraction? distraction literally means being drawn
1: away from something like attraction means being drawn towards something or someone and being drawn away is is just you know the literal meaning of the word and what you're being drawn away from and being you know drawn towards at the same time is just the open question Mm. which i kind of wanted to investigate and the thing is psychologists were looking at this phenomenon but they were phrasing it in terms of multitasking. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure this is a concept we've all heard before. It's become part of our everyday vocabulary. Um, The problem with multitasking is that it's kind of a meaningless word. When you look at the word, it means just doing more than one thing, you know, multi-tasks. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I looked into the empirical literature and I discovered that What these psychologists were doing was giving students an educational task, like, you know, reading a text or watching a video, and then pairing that with a distractive task, uh, like instant messaging or answering unrelated questions. Mm. So in reality, they weren't like dividing their attention as much as they were diverting it. And that seemed kind of apt for what was going on in the classroom as well. But the term multitasking is kind of empty and hollow because mm. it could just as well mean taking notes while you're listening to something. Yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily bad, which distraction
0: is. Yeah. So when you're looking at digital distraction, you've got multi screens in the classroom, perhaps. I mean, there are obviously lots of potential for distraction. But yeah. I mean, what what was you what empirically were you finding? What's going on?
1: I decided to kind of skip the multitasking and the mm. ver- it's, it's kind of a cognitive term, so it's something that's. Uh, very heavily related to like internal mental mechanisms in the heads of students. And based on some theoretical underpinnings, I wanted to look at more of, you know, embodied relations to technologies. And I went out and then I talked to students. That's a good place to start, I think. And when you talk to students, they're actually very good at describing what's going on when they're distracted. So, they would tell me stuff like, um, it's almost too easy to come, become distracted. It's just F, A, and Enter, they mm. would say. And literally type out the keys uh, in air while, while just describing this mechanism. And, and this led me to the idea of habits. that They, they have habituated um, these kind of off-task mechanisms, like when you type in your PIN. It's, it's in your fingers, right? Mm. And the same thing goes for like, logging on to Facebook or Twitter or whatever you use. And it's something that happens like, subconsciously, you could say pre-reflectively. So it's, it's something they're not even consciously doing. And they would tell me that sometimes they don't even want to do it. Mm. So it's something that kind of just happens when they get bored. And to be honest, it is kind of boring to be in a high school.
0: Well, I always say when the issue of distraction is brought up when I'm being interviewed about digital classrooms, well, in the old days when I was distracted, I'd look out the window. I've always been distracted. I mean, one of the interesting questions is what's new here? Is there anything particularly new about the distraction through and with digital devices? That's a really good question. And it's
1: something I've heard a lot from teachers as well. And to be clear, I'm not saying that if you remove computers, you eliminate distraction because Mm. distraction has always been there and it always will be. But I think the computer introduces a qualitatively new form of distraction because it's so tempting. It kind of opens the world. You have the world at your fingertips. And um, in a way, you could say that the computer is tempting. It's become like this magnetic attraction to your attention. And I, I wouldn't necessarily think the window, looking at the window, would be the same mechanism.
0: You're not going to see your best friends and a unicorn and a cat in your bank account if you look out the window? No. Yeah, exactly. So this idea of context collapse, that it brings together all the different worlds of yeah. things, it's not it takes you out of school, out of yeah. yourself, maybe.
1: Yeah. For a long time, that was what exactly what was celebrated about yeah. laptops, that they broke down barriers, like the, the these cramping, um, kind of uh, suffocating barriers of traditional classrooms. Mm. But... The flip side of this is that it kind of also brings your friends and your uh, memes and your music videos and everything into the classroom as well, and suddenly the teacher has to compete with that.
0: But sometimes the hype of digital technologies is about serendipity, that you may go down a rabbit hole and all of a sudden you've learned something new, this idea of geeking out that Mimi Ito talks about. So I mean, are you saying there are kind of good types of distraction and bad types of distraction?
1: I would say that the good type of distraction could probably be called something else more helpful, like just learning maybe. Yeah. But um, it's definitely true that you can geek out and go down rabbit holes, but not all rabbit holes are like good places to be. That's true. <laughs> and you don't always want to end up there. And one thing that's very kind of um, poignant in my, my data is that these rabbit holes take a long time to kind of reappear from. Yeah. So mm-hmm. they say sometimes it's like six or seven minutes, and then they become aware that, oh, shit, I'm doing it again. Yeah. And in that specific, like, the idea of, of becoming aware while you're doing it is is very interesting, I think
0: yeah, exactly. Now one of the things that really interests me about your research is this post-phenomenological approach that you take. Now, I mean, for the uninitiated first of all, can you remind us what phenomenology is and also why do we move need to move beyond it?
1: Um I'm not sure I would say that we need to move beyond it, but phenomenology at its core is like it's the science of phenomena and 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 it's it's uh, it's about exploring phenomena in depth. For Husserl, it was consciousness and intentionality. For Heidegger, it was like being in the world, all kinds of being, like technology, uh, the being of human beings and stuff like that, the being of art. For Merleau-Ponty, was embodiment. So it's, it's kind of a, a wide spectrum. Mm. But as a research method, I think you can boil it down to like taking the first person perspective, like trying to find out um, what's it like to become distracted, for instance. Yeah. yeah. What is it likeness, some people call it. Um, And traditional phenomenology did that um, in a multitude of ways. And um, the concept of post-phenomenology criticizes phenomenology in at least three ways. It says that some of the early phenomenology was very consciousness-centered and disembodied. Mm. And we want to include like the whole body. So when you study technologies, for instance, um, Norm Friesen has said that it's important that you're not just face-to-face with a screen. You're also hands-on with a keyboard. Yeah. So it's important to get like that manual aspect included in your research. Um, the second part is that um, traditional phenomenology uh, is sometimes very essentialist. And uh, post-phenomenology uses a um, phrase called multi-stability to kind of emphasize that technologies can do a lot of different things. You can use your computer for taking notes or uh, searching Wikipedia, but you can also use it for um, listening to Spotify or mm. going down that famous rabbit hole. So kind of saying that the computer doesn't have an essence that we can find. Yeah, it has yeah. a lot of different stabilities. Yeah. And then finally, um, it's kind of um, a reaction against the late Heidegger's uh, one-size-fits-all uh, model of technology. He was very critical and skeptical of technology, and he thought it was a, a special way of dis- disclosing the world as kind of resources that we need to optimize. Yeah. And as kind of a large-scale uh, analysis, that might be horrifyingly true. But when you want to look at computers or like concrete technologies, it might not be very helpful to have this kind of um, large-scale
0: model of technology in mind. So it allows you to look at the unconscious as well as the conscious.
1: Yeah, you can you, you could say that. It, it's, it's a way of including bodily habits um, instead of only looking at like conscious choices mm.
0: for instance. So I can see why it perfectly fits with everything we talked about before in terms of digital distraction. Yeah. But in terms of methods then you saw you said it's an approach to try and understand what it feels like to be distracted. Yeah. What methods, what tangible methods did it lead you towards using? It sounds very qualitative. It is
1: qualitative, I would argue and it's it's a discussion that's been going on in the post phenomenological community because it springs from philosophy. Mm. And so far, it hasn't been very empirical. But uh, those of us who are inspired by it try to kind of use it empirically. And we tend to use qualitative methods. So like participant observation is what, something I used, and a lot of interviews to, to kind of ask students, so what is it like? No mm. one had done that before. And I yeah. thought that was very thought provoking. Yeah. Why not ask students uh, what it's like to become distracted from
0: it? <laughs> Absolutely. And become distracted yourself. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in terms of kind of innovative methods as well. So, I mean, we've got interviews and participant observations. Mm. Are there any kind of fringe things that people are beginning to play around with in the post-phenomenological space?
1: It's still very much open. It's an open framework. And because it's basically philosophical and not very kind of empirical, it still has a lot of room to to play around with methods. And um, I'm not very inventive. And I just stick to interviews and participant observation. But I'm sure some of the other post-phenomenologists would do loads of different things Mm. and could be inspired by all kinds of different methods like, you know, um, tactile ethnography and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, a wide open space, which leads me to my last question. I'm really interested. I mean, you've been working on digital distraction for a good few years now. Yeah. Where are you going next? What's the next big idea? What things are kind of bubbling up in your mind that you might be interested in looking at?
1: So one of the things I'm kind of interested in looking at now is the notion of habits because that was basically the conclusion of my dissertation that what's at stake here might be a case of bad habits. Uh, And I think the term habit would be helpful in like the general societal debate about this phenomenon. And I'm kind of worried that we've we've begun to discuss distraction in terms of addiction. Mm. And as a psychologist, I'm very much opposed to like pathologizing discourses like that. I think when it's something that is so broad-scale as this phenomenon, we should probably refrain from calling it a mental illness, which addiction basically is. So I want to kind of stick to the idea of habits. And having said that, I would like to kind of look at um, habituation as a form of um, what the Germans would call Bildung, as kind of self-formation. And how um, habit formation uh, is part of the educational system, both as teacher and education, in, in, uh, initiated uh, phenomena, and also as something students do. Yeah. So to look at uh, to use the idea of habituation to look at, at student agency. What do they do to become like good people and educated people?
0: Mm. I remember, I was thinking back to the podcast I did with Jennifer Blesby when she talked about John Dewey yeah. and the importance of habits. Yeah. So there's clear connections there, I guess.
1: There is, because post-phenomenology, another aspect of that is that it uh, draws on pragmatism. And I think um, Dewey's notion of habits is is probably good to incorporate more clear, clearly into post-phenomenology because there is a tendency for the idea of habits to become very individualized. Mm. And perhaps we should
0: start looking at, at like broader mechanisms in our society. Dewey for the digital age. Exactly. Uh, so, so I just want one final question. How do you get away with this? Because if you're working in a psychology department, yeah. and you say as a psychologist, but yet you're a qualitative researcher, you're drawing on philosophy, how do you go down with the, kind of the more mainstream psychologists?
1: Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, in psychology, we have... Uh, we have a, 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 a clear notion of like the evidence hierarchy and qualitative research is at the clear bottom of that pyramid, mm. like somewhere around, you know, your aunt's anecdotes. So I'm, I'm, it's, a, it's a, a constant struggle. But at the same time, I think I'm helped by the fact that people can recognize these experiences. Yeah, yeah. So when I tell people about the ex- experience of finding yourself on Facebook, most people today recognize that and they see it as valuable to kind of incorporate that into like mainstream psychological research. Yeah. So that's a big help, but it's still it's still a struggle and I still get rejected from a lot of psychological journals because they say my number of participants is too low because and- I only interview <laughs> twenty five.
0: I think we all face those problems. I yeah. mean, good luck with the struggle. Good luck with your future research. It's been really interesting to hear about what you're up to. Thanks very much. Thank you very much.